Seltzer Kings Podcasts. Hey, are you into werewolves, mad sciences, and a little bit of witchcraft? Then stay tuned for an all-new episode of Watch Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun. Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network. Available on all podcast platforms. So you're telling me that Scott Pruitt made his employees buy him stuff and he didn't pay them back? I don't see the problem, Gavin. That's what your job is. Ass. The following podcast contains... Are you always this pissy when you're conducting an investigation? Susan, I believe pissy is a vulgar word. Really? Yes. I hear it used all the time. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When your infantry platoon secured the Starbucks but failed to obtain the Wi-Fi password, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host Dave Bledsoe and this is a Friday, July 6, 2018 Dispatches from the Second Battle of Starbucks edition of the show where we read letters from the troops on the front lines. Stay tuned. The What the Hell Were You Thinking podcast is brought to you by the fourth Proud Boy Company who want you to know they are fighting for the freedom of all men to masturbate bitterly alone in their tents. The fourth Proud Boy has yet to see action of any kind, but remain proud, poised, and ready to urinate themselves and flee, shrieking from the field the moment any black man appears in any context, just as they always have. The fourth Proud Boys want their mothers to know they love them and thank them for the shipment of tissue and hand lotion. They remain steadfast and proud and hope the war will be over soon, or at least before the next season of Rick and Morty debuts, otherwise they'll be forced to desert. Dearest Martha, the field is lost. We cannot overcome the opposition. Pray for me. My reckoning is near. We are low on hot pockets and not a Taco Bell in sight. Jebediah says we may go short on rations, limiting us to 6,000 calories per day. Edmund is trying to keep our spirits up with tales of his hot girlfriend, who lives in Canada. If I should fall on the field of battle, tell my dearest mother that I loved her, and that she mustn't look through my browser history. Martha... If the dead can come back to this earth and flit unseen around those they loved, I shall always be near you, my favorite wafu pillow. Random neo-Nazi. When I was six or seven, I would spend most of my summers at my grandmother's house, way back in the mountains of southeastern Tennessee. It was a marvelous place to be a kid. Little streams running through it in endless hollows and hilltops that we would play upon all day long. And my cousins and I would run wild, screaming and act like barbarians for weeks on end, despite the constant warnings to watch out for any number of things that could kill us. Snakes. Snakes. Oh, God, yes, there are a lot of snakes. We should have died. And one of our favorite pastimes during those long summers was playing war. War was a simple game. You divide into groups, the cool cousins and the uncool cousins. Usually the youngest cousins consisted of the uncool cousins. And we would do battle against one another until one side broke down crying. Again, usually the youngest cousins. And then the games would start all over. The problem with war was a simple one. 
the endless arguments about who was hit by the withering fire from my toy guns. Inevitably, there would be claims of poor marksmanship or, failing that, just some magical shields that would deflect bullets. Uh, front shield! Uh, back shield! The arguments about who or was or was not hit would often break out into actual fighting instead of the pretend fighting that made the game so special. But one year, one year, we discovered a solution to our problem. You see, my grandmother planted a field of watermelons, which in the parlance and vernacular of the time and place... And it all went tits up. ...producing the tiniest, most pathetic watermelons anyone has ever seen. They were unfit to eat and left to rot in the patch. We discovered these rotting fruits were the perfect size and shape for a hand grenade, and when they exploded, they showered pink fetid pulp all over everywhere. Thus began the greatest game of war we ever played. We gathered hundreds of these tiny melons and caches of grenades all over the place and battled until we were all covered in sticky, sweet, rotting fruit, and, and God, it was Fun. It went on for hours because back in those days we were totally unsupervised unless it was time for food. The whole idea was a brilliant moment in a child's mind except for one tiny little problem that we had not foreseen. Rotting fruit attract yellow jackets. An aggressive speech is a wasp that stung for fun and they infested my grandmother's place for days resulting in everyone being stung multiple times. It was, in retrospect... The funniest, dumbest, fake war I'd ever seen, at least until this week. When the long-coming Second Civil War broke out after Alex Jones decided that Democrats were about to launch our long-planned operation to force Trump out on July 4th. Establishment publications that don't communicate with the general public, but establishment publications that communicate with the governmental and corporate institutions began to develop a plan for a civil emergency using civil unrest, racial strife in America to force Trump out. The gist of his ramble was that the media, in conjunction with, I don't fucking know, aliens from Xenon 5, were going to make libs rise up and start Civil War II electoral boogaloo. I watched the entire video that... Well, I didn't watch the entire video. I, I skipped around it looking for sound bites. But in the middle of his rant, he literally sold his bogus ass supplements with the banner for the second Civil War sale. You got some set of balls, Sonny. Congratulations. My God, he actually had ad copy written to sell fake vitamins and health supplements, incorporating the mass uprising by liberals against the lawfully elected government as a call to action. Because obviously, if you're going to be in the trenches fighting the dirty lib raiders from the blue states, you want to make sure your male essence is fortified with male throb formula 47. Who listens to this dipshit? Or here's a better question. Who buys things from this dipshit? These are people of the land, the common clay of the new west. You know, morons. <laughs> of course, we on the left could not let such a challenge go unanswered. And as liberals, we stood as one and said to Alex Jones and his ilk, yes, absolutely, you are correct. We are planning on launching the second civil war. You are too clever for us naughty people. And friends, that's what we did. We launched our attack on the spot with a volley of hashtags our enemy could not withstand. The initial skirmishes actually took place on July 3rd when General Patton Oswalt engaged the enemy with this tweet. My beloved Harriet, 
I write to you with a heavy heart. I was gravely memed during a skirmish with a squad of incel irregulars. Doc Tibbins says there's nothing for it. He will have to amputate my Twitter feed. Womp, womp, Jed. Colonel Rick Wilson's irregulars engaged later that same day. My dearest, a brief skirmish against the 24th Keck Company. Third incel battalion ended in a terrible slaughter, though their commander sent a gab post warning us that he had studied the blade. The field is a horror of bloodied waifu pillows. And so the war went. By the morning of Independence Day, we'd stormed the fields of glory and set our foes to run. They could not compete with our savage hashtag mockery. They would insult us for our ice lattes and we'd fire back that we'd already mocked ourselves about that. I too even saw action when I tweeted, Dearest wife, it is hot and we've been without ice for our lattes for days. The locals seem to subsist on nothing but small canned sausages and a vile drink called sweet tea. By late in the day, the foregone conclusion was a staggering liberal victory. Angry naval officers sent this dispatch from the front. Dear battalion commanders, the war was over before it began. Their leaders came down with a sudden case of bone spurs, and it appears that Lieutenant Colonel Ted Nugent shitteth his pants for naught. It's now a free-for-all. I will be home in time for Maddow. Yours truly. By the 5th, the fighting was over as we slowly began to pick up the pieces, leaving many asking hard questions, such as Jesse McLaren, who asked on Twitter with a plaintive and direct query, Did we win? Does anyone truly win when a country is torn asunder? I mean, look, we kicked their fucking asses during the first Civil War, and here we are today. I don't know if I would call this winning. Keith Mine, an expert on how civil wars happen around the world, a U.S. Army veteran and State Department professional, told The New Yorker in the days following the events of Chancellorsville, Virginia, last August, how civil wars happen today. Quote, based on his experience in civil wars on three continents, Mine cited five conditions that support his prediction entrenched national polarization with no obvious meeting place for resolution, increasingly divisive press coverage and information flows, weakened institutions, notably Congress and the ju judiciary, a sellout or abandonment of responsibility by political leadership, and the legitimization of violence as the, quote, in way, unquote, to either conduct discourse or solve disputes. Judith Geisberg, an editor for the Journal of the Civil War Era and historian at Villanova, told the New Yorker, We never agreed on the outcome of the Civil War and the direction the country should go in. The post-war amendments were highly contentious, especially the 14th Amendment, which provides equal protection under the law, and they still are today. What does it mean to deliver voting rights to people of color? We still don't know, she added. Does that make us vulnerable to a repeat of the past? I don't see a repeat of those specific circumstances. But that doesn't mean we're not entering something similar in the way of a culture war. We are vulnerable to racism, tribalism, and conflicting visions of the way forward for our nation, unquote. I spent most of Independence Day doing what I do best for the cause, drinking copiously and opining for a friend on diverse matters of politics and culture. You must be fun at parties. I think we both know the flaw in that theory. And after putting away the best part of a bottle of Jameson, you know, the part that has all the liquor in it, I arrived at the conclusion that we are in the middle of the second American Civil War right now, and the hashtag battles on Twitter are but a part of the greater war effort. On the one side, we have the liberal elites, the liberal you know, elites who dominate television and the media, 
And next to them are the urban left wing, the vast majority of Americans who live in urban, multi-ethnic, and economically prosperous cities around the country. In the hearts of the reddest states, there are blobs of blue who vote Democrat. And covering our flanks are the leftists, the socialists who are pressing for a larger swing than the most voters are comfortable with, but are making inroads into making the unthinkable, like, I don't know, jobs guarantees and governmentally funded health care, quite thinkable. And our shock troops are the Antifa, who are out there on the streets fighting the actual battles with the hard right. Then, on the right, we have the establishment, the obscenely rich who finance the right-wing establishment who push through most of our economic policies. Then, you have the suburban small-c conservatives, relatively comfortable money-wise, but not especially socially conservative. But if they had their druthers, they'd prefer minorities and women be a little bit quieter about their struggle. Hey, you think you and your friends could keep it down? They aren't against you, but not really for you either. They would rather have you, you know, just be quiet off in a corner someplace. Then you have the hard kernel of the right wing, the conservative Christians who want abortion gone, and, you know, maybe the gays too, if that could be done without violence. Part of them are the rural working class whites who are pretty sure that brown people are the source of their problem. And then finally, uh, they are equivalent for Antifa on the right wing shock troops, the alt-right and the Nazis who are carrying torches and running over protesters. Honestly, for the people in the middle, the politics aren't that far apart. The largest part of both sides are traditionally content not to be political. And they turn out to vote in presidential elections, and they watch the news from time to time, and tut-tutted. But for the most part, we're content so long as no one was making life difficult for them. And hell, I was one of them until 2015, and I would give a whole lot to go back to that state of blissful apathy. But I can't now. I've been woke. Oh, so that's what woke means. Shit. Even in our apathy, we, that mushy middle, generally felt things were moving in the proper direction. We were comfortable with the social and demographic change going on in the nation. We'd already sorted ourselves into cities where we were, you know, or the suburbs where we were exposed to different people and perspectives and cultures on the ratio that we were comfortable with. If we met gay people, we discovered that they weren't scary or strange at all. They were mostly fabulous. And we would even go you one further. That so long as whatever it is you were into didn't harsh anyone else's mellow, fucking go for it, bro. But our brothers and sisters on the right felt a little differently. They looked around the country that is increasingly becoming younger, more urban, and more brown, and said, Well, that ain't right. And look, I try to put myself in your headspace out there, conservative land, because it came from you. I mean... I'm just a small town girl who was living in a lonely world and I took a midnight train going anywhere and when I got off that train I I was in New York City. New York City Get a rope. So I get it. The world is big and it's unknown and when you come from a small town, strangers are scary and maybe dangerous. So maybe you should keep them away from you. But one of the reasons the right has been so brutally effective over the years is they have one single overarching idea that keeps them together. Nothing ever changes. People know their place and they stay there. I mean, I love my parents and I know that in their hearts, they don't hold an animus towards minority, that they believe gay people have a right to exist. They just also believe that, uh, you know, they shouldn't be allowed to exist anywhere but far, far away from them. And if they are around them, then they must conform to the standards of the locale. 
unseen and silent for the gays, probably subservient for minorities. That the good folks who've lived in these small towns all their life should have precedent and power. It's the way things always were, and it's the way things always should be. This is the conflict at the heart of the Second Civil War, the progress of time. Conservatives are fighting to slow down change, to rewrite parts of the past they never liked. They absolutely believe that abortion, that abortion is murder, but they also absolutely believe that men are superior to women. They look back to a time when separate but equal didn't mean to them that blacks have less than they did, just that they had different. If you peel apart the onion inside the psyche of every conservative, you will find a core that believes that change is bad and must be stopped with any means necessary. It is the fear of the future that drives them, that motivates them, and pushes them to fight. And it's one of the reasons why liberals are losing the battle at the moment. Until November of 2016, we weren't scared. We had no reason to fight. We're winning. But now, we too are scared. And we too are standing up to fight. This second civil war is based on the same fears and motivations of the first one. The fear of change, of losing place. But it's fought with different weapons. Mostly. The left has a lot more power than we generally think. I mean, you hear the standard apply from the right wing. We got all the guns, and they're correct. They do have all the guns, but we've got all the factories that makes the guns and the bullets. But we also have the liberals, the culture. We set the narrative for our society. And while the right is desperately struggling to get a piece of it, they lack the one thing that gives us the edge. Talent. I mean, for fuck's sake. Look at the celebrities the right wing has. Roseanne, John Voight, Dennis Rodman, Stephen Baldwin, Gary Busey, Tia Tequila, Scott Bayo. Really? That's the saddest thing I ever heard. Their only real celebrities are the talking shitheads from Fox and Coulter, Tommy Lauren, and that silly twat that's running around Twitter shitposting about campus carry. When it comes to fighting the cultural battles, they are running around with a spitball and a crazy straw. What they do have is all the money, and they're using it to buy up the media left and right so they can choke our message off of the source. Oh, and the government, they... They do have the government. We we probably shouldn't forget about that. The right is fucking terrified that the culture wars are some nefarious tool being used to manipulate them. Like some mastermind in Hollywood is deliberately putting shows on television to lure young small towners away from the home to liberal enclaves and re-educating them with socialist doctrine. And I don't know a lot about Hollywood, but what I do know tells me that this is some bullshit because the only thing Hollywood cares about is whether or not a show or a movie will make them any money. They aren't seeding Star Wars with women and people of color because George Soros told them to. They're doing it because they believe that's what people will say, pay to see. And they're right. More people will pay to see that than the tiny number of lick dick whiners on the internet who complain about it. The culture really is a mirror of our society. And while, yes, a larger portion of us, those who move and shake the culture, are on the political left, that's because more of America is politically left. And the number gets bigger every year. This is the thing the right wing can never change. 
the inexorable march of time and numbers that is the future. The country is getting younger. It is getting browner. Women now outnumber men demographically and are increasingly dominating men in education and careers. In a generation, women will outnumber men in positions of power in every facet of our society. It's simple math. Women are doing things while men are sitting on their couches playing Xbox and masturbating. Those men who are still doing are shaped and changed by the world that is less and less about traditional roles than by the simple fact of progress. And they can either adapt to the way things will eventually be or they can fall further and further behind until irrelevance, until in two generations, there will eventually be a social divide that is unbridgeable. And the have-nots will be the new minority, uneducated white men and they will have done it to themselves rasmussen released a poll at the end of june saying quote 31 percent of likely u.s voters say it's likely that the united states will experience a second civil war sometime in the next five years and 11 percent who say it is very likely a new rasmussen reports national telephone and online survey finds that 59 percent consider a second civil war unlikely but that only includes 29% who say it's not likely at all. I say, we're fighting right now for the future of this country. It's a bloodless war. I take that back. It's mostly a bloodless war. The center is holding at the moment. So much depends on a red wheelbarrow and what's happening in the coming months. If the great mass of the middle decides to move left, even slightly, we take the pressure off. We vented back to the culture wars and the hashtags. If they do not, then violence is inevitable. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but eventually. So go out and vote this fall, or else the next letters we write from the front won't be mocking tweets with funny hashtags. Save us, General Patton Oswalt. You're our only hope. That is it for our show this week. Some of the stories that are coming off the front lines of this war are just heartbreaking. Like this one we've been reading at the office. My dearest Rose, there are few places in this heathen field for a man to charge his iPad. First, I feel you must imagine the lunch I am having as the Instagrams is down. Fabulously, Heath X Buford, first hipster battalion, the fighting kale raps. Oh, God. So terrible. It's as terrible as this here low-rated podcast where we are doing our best for the cause, but we need you to do yours. If you want to support the cause, rate and review this show wherever you get your podcast. It will carry the messages from our boys at the front back to the folks at home. A message just like this one. Please. Send Sergeant William Nye from the 401st Facts and Imperial Evidence Brigade that I have infiltrated this enemy camp and replaced their cots with yoga mats. I pray their newfound flexibility extends to civility and critical thinking skills. God, <laughs> I mean, just imagine the suffering that poor man has gone through. You can follow my dispatches from the front at the Hell underscore podcast Twitter on Twitter or the show name on Facebook. For me, Colonel Jameson Dave Bledsoe, Corporal Producer Gavin, and all the other soldiers of the fictional podcast People's Front, we want to say, my dearest Clara, I feel I will not be home when this next season of Orange is the New Black premieres. 
How I long to Netflix and chill. Think of me when the avocado harvest comes in. In the taste of your toast, savor my love and think of me at brunch time. We will see you all next week. Uh. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Listen to me. So I take a small bow. Seltzer Kings Podcasts.